Hi everyone, Duncan Fletcher here. Welcome back to the PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series. Folks, we've got a good conversation for you here today. We're talking with Jason Montgomery of Hush Blackwell. And we're going to get into the weeds on name, image, and likeness and the legal implications of how that's going to impact the student-athlete world and the collegiate landscape in general. Jason's got quite the background in order to be able to have this conversation. He's a former NCAA investigator who has looked at all levels of the NCAA, Division I, II, and III, and a range of different conferences, including Pac-12, Big 12, and the Big 10. He's seen it all. Interestingly, not only has he worked on the NCAA side, he has also worked on the academic side, being a compliance administrator at North Carolina State University. So he has been on both sides of the fence and has a really unique perspective particularly now that he's a lawyer that's specializing in helping people manage the NCAA regulatory processes and proactive planning related to the NCAA and their various regulations. So ladies and gentlemen, I think we're all shocked that Jason still has his hair. In all seriousness, folks, this is going to be a great conversation. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy it. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. The PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series is extraordinarily fortunate to have Aura Health as a sponsor this year. Founded in 2013, Aura Health is the company behind the health tech wearable, the Aura Ring, which provides actionable insights on sleep and its impact on your overall health. It's used by top performers across a variety of industries, including the NBA, the WNBA, NASCAR, UFC, and more. And in fact, I've got one on my finger, which I had before Aura even thought about sponsoring pads. I can tell you one thing for sure, it's definitely helped me align my sleep, which was an absolute car wreck. The Aura Ring delivers personalized readiness and activity and sleep insights automatically to the Aura app, providing wearers with practical steps for long-term improvement. I can attest to that. The Aura Ring is not a medical device and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, monitor, or prevent medical conditions or illnesses. For more information, I'd urge you to check out AuraRing.com. And on behalf of PADS, we thank you for your sponsorship of the PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series. Hi, everyone. Duncan Fletcher here with pads the we're in the midst of our athlete development podcast series i'm here with my colleague stephanie thorburn how are you doing stephanie doing great how are you i am doing phenomenal thanks for asking and we're very fortunate today to have some law expertise on the line we're here with jason montgomery from hush blackwell how are you doing today jason i'm doing very well thanks for having me Duncan. Well, we're very glad to have you on our uh, Athlete Development Podcast series. And well, I guess there's really no other way to say it. There's been a whole lot of stuff going on here over the last little bit. We've got NIL. We have Supreme Court rulings coming down. There's a lot going on in the student-athlete world, is there not? Yes, there uh, are a number of items that are coming down and and, um, fast and furious and uh, changing uh, and evolving as we speak uh, uh, and will continue for the next six months, I believe. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to get uh, wild and woolly. Um, but before we get into the wild and woolly of what's going on in the NCAA world, why don't we talk a little bit about your background? I think one of the things we always want to do when we're talking to some of the guests we've had on our uh, Athlete Development Summit podcast series is we want to know about what what brought you to sports? What was your you know your relationship to whatever sports you were involved in coming up? So maybe you can tell me, uh, you know, what what were you playing as you grew up? And then how did that inform your experience as you got into the field of law? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. So, um, you know, I played sports all uh, growing up as a kid and, and in high school. Uh, you know, the traditional seasons when I was a kid were, you know, football, basketball, and baseball. Uh, throw in track and field if you were uh, fast enough. 
And um, ultimately, I, uh, I went to a small college in Kansas, an NAIA school, the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics, where I was a student athlete and, and played football at a school called Baker University. Um, so sports was an integral part of my life, probably led me into, uh, you know, really the school that I chose uh, that ultimately um, gave me a foundation uh, that, that allowed me to go to, to, to law school and become an attorney. I didn't um, uh, go into law school or leave law school with the idea that I would practice in uh, collegiate athletics or be a quote unquote sports attorney. Um, ultimately, though, um, my belief in uh, the power of college athletics to change individuals' uh, lives and to make those individuals uh, give them opportunities that they otherwise would not have had led me to want to, to pursue college athletics as a, as a profession. Um, so after practicing uh, law, I went to the University of Kansas Law School, practiced law in Kansas, and then ultimately worked for the NAIA and then was fortunate to get hired by the NCAA, uh, worked at the NCAA for six years, and then um, on an institution's campus at North Carolina State University before moving back home with my family to Kansas City and, and uh, starting a practice uh, that, that specialized in NCAA regulatory matters. Got it. Well, that's uh, and out of curiosity, you say you play football. What uh, what position did you play? What was the? Uh... Oh, I was one of the guys that you know you could just run into walls. So I was I was a linebacker, and uh, you know had, had a little bit of skill, but uh, but really uh, was someone that just uh, would would bang some heads. So uh, there you go. Uh, yeah. And you made the intelligent decision to become a lawyer, so that worked out. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason has a personality, so we're not sure why he's in law, but we're glad we have him on the on the line here today. Um, so one of the things that was interesting about your background, and I'd love to kind of just to very quickly dump in, uh, jump into that, is you were an NCAA investigator. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Correct. Maybe you could just talk a little bit for some people that may not be totally familiar with what that involves. Obviously, you need to have a legal background. Obviously, having an experience as a, as a student athlete, I'd imagine, is really important. From your perspective, maybe just sort of walk us through, like, what is that role? What does that entail? And, and uh, what does that look like in terms of, you know, what you're trying to accomplish as an NCAA investigator? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, many of my colleagues at the NCA were attorneys uh, or, you know, as, as I said at the time, reformed attorneys. They weren't really practicing law anymore. They were working for an association. Um, but but some of them were not. Some of them had master's uh, degrees and, and uh, really were. The, the concept of the enforcement program is to, you know, create competitive equity and to enforce the NCA bylaws and, and ensure that uh, that individuals are operating ethically in, in the space. And we can debate, you know, probably whether the, the methods by which that, that they achieve that are um, in the best interests of everyone involved. Um, I think the uh, the intent is there uh, to, to be a, a force of good in college athletics. I will say that. Absolutely. And I think that uh, you'd like to imagine that the NCAA is approaching all this with, with the right intention in mind. It's just sometimes maybe it gets a little bit jumbled up. But again, that's a conversation for a different podcast. I, I wager. <laughs> we could, yeah, uh, we, we could talk about that for an hour, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure it'll be more than an hour. Uh, but I tell you what, why don't we jump into what's going on with, you know, name, image, and likeness. Um, and maybe it would be really helpful from a legal perspective to give us sort of the rundown on 
what's existed prior to what we anticipate will be a ruling here shortly from the Supreme Court around NIL. What's been in existence now and where do we think it's going to go? And, and maybe that's a great way to jump into it to sort of provide some context from a legal perspective for folks that are that are dealing with this really significant change in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll, I'll try not to get too too much in the weeds, but but really, if you want to talk about name, image and likeness in the context of college athletics, that really begins with the O'Bannon versus NCAA case. Uh, and that's a case that involved um, a former UCLA athlete at O'Bannon who sued uh, the NCAA in, in part based upon the use of his name, image and likeness in an EA sports game. Right. So the EA sports basketball game that had his what appeared to be his likeness on that. Now, ultimately, uh, EA settled. The NCAA was left in that case. And there was that, that case didn't decide necessarily whether you know, individual student athletes had a right to use their name, image and likeness. That case ultimately decided that um, individuals had a right to earn more than scholarship, traditional scholarship limits. And that's why we're at the cost of attendance uh, stage in Division I athlete, uh, athletics these days. But it brought up this other uh, concept of a right of publicity. And really, um, mo many states have some right of publicity for um, you know, professional athletes or those who have um, a, a recognizable name or image or likeness. And that's typically uh, in the common law, which means there's not a statutory provision. There's no federal law that grants anyone a right of publicity. But basically, states have come together and said, hey, if you use someone's likeness to, to you know, gain some sort of economic advantage, they have a right to that uh, in inherently, and they should be able to, um, you know, to profit off of that. And by, you know, there's a variety of ways that that um, that has been attacked in terms of how it's been um, you know, processed through the legal system. But the general concept is you have a right to your own image and likeness. In the NCA world, what had happened prior to O'Bannon was student athletes at the beginning of the year would sign a statement that said, you can use my name, image, and likeness, you know, basically you know, signing away their rights. And the courts, uh, they didn't comment specifically on that aspect, but the, the, the presumption is that was insufficient uh, information for a student athlete to sign away an economic benefit that was so inherently part of them. Okay. So within that framework, uh, the state of California um, decides to adopt a law in 2019 that would give student athletes the opportunity to, to earn off their name, image, and likeness and prohibit uh, associations like the NCAA from preventing that to occur. So uh, interestingly, the governor of California is a former student athlete, division one baseball player. So he had a stake in the game. They signed this law in 2019 and the NCAA's immediate reaction is no, you, we're not going to uh, participate in that system. If California schools want to do that, that's great, but they're not going to be a part of our championships. President Emmert sends a, you know, a blistering letter to uh, the governor and, uh, you know, essentially uh, the governor wins the, um, you know, the, the publicity battle and people start flocking to the concept that, you know what, this doesn't make sense that the NCAA could limit this. We're on California's side. And what ends up happening is 
the NCA shifts its position significantly and says, oh, no, we're we are now we're going to figure it out. We're going to give name, image and likeness. But in the interim between 2019 and present day, other states said, well, you know what? This is a bipartisan issue. I think we can get on board with this. Everyone hates the NCAA. We we can get everyone behind this. So uh, many states start um, passing their own legislation. And really where the tipping point was is uh, Florida uh, was the first state to pass name, image, and likeness legislation that essentially said that this is going to go into effect regardless of what the NCA does by July 1st, 2021. And so we are now uh, you know, six days away from this effective date and the NCAA unfortunately still hasn't acted, but there's, there's some interim steps that we can talk about as well. Well, Jason, I think that really gives um, our participants a great overview and picture of what name, image, and likeness is about, how it came to fruition. And in theory, it sounds great. These individuals are working hard. Um, they're representing the institution. They're bringing income to the institution. They should benefit. But on the other side, there are all the details. There are all the ramifications um, that can happen because of name, image, and likeness. If you can just shed some light um, to our athlete development specialists, some of the items that they need to be aware of, because again, in theory, it sounds great. Our student athletes are going to make additional income, but that additional income can impact what? That additional income can um, negatively affect those student athletes how? Again, I think sometimes people see uh, the world through rose-colored glasses, which can be lovely. However, they're not getting the complete picture of how this um, can impact their student athletes, their institutions, and not the student athletes just present day, but long term. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Stephanie. I think you know the the biggest piece here um, for student athletes and and student athlete professionals to be aware of is that uh, this type these types of arrangements that student athletes may enter into are certainly going to be subject to tax implications. Most of them are going to be on a contract basis, so you're not going to have a W-2 traditional form, so no one's going to be with withholding taxes. So at the end of the day, depending on how much a student athlete could earn, they're going to be responsible to pay taxes on that. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, most significantly is many of uh, uh, athletes have some sort of financial aid package that includes uh, need-based aid. Um, you know, not every uh, student athlete uh, has a full scholarship. And in fact, even those who have full scholarship have some sort of aid based upon um, need. And uh, depending on what they might earn as a result of their name, image, and likeness, this could affect uh, their ability to receive um, need-based aid. Uh, so that needs to be a consideration. Um, I don't think it's really been talked about much and, and something that, that should be evaluated by a student athlete. And you know, the, the other piece of this is just the general contract and liability piece. You're likely gonna be entering into agreements with more sophisticated individuals, business entities, and you have to be um, certain of what exactly you're agreeing to, how you're um, coming to that arrangement and what your obligations are. Um, and you know, once you enter into a contract, you're subject to that contract being enforced um, you know, uh, by the, the court system. So, you know, student athletes uh, could put themselves in, in some uh, difficult positions uh, if they don't, you know, fully understand what they're agreeing to. And then finally, from a risk standpoint, you know, one thing that's good that this 
these rules will allow is that, you know, student athletes can promote themselves, have their own camps, clinics, you know, other activities. But in doing so, in addition to the tax implications, you know, you also have implications related to liability and mm -hmm. concerns related to liability where it may be beneficial for those entities to have um, a limited liability company or something similar in their state uh, to protect themselves, uh, you know, from individual uh, liability in, in situations. Quick question. Um, with regards to the states that are in support of this, is there any talks of supporting education for the student athletes or those individuals that are on campus working with student athletes funding the education that needs to occur? There is. And, and some, some of these state laws that have been passed that go into effect uh, July 1st have requirements that student athletes receive education. I mean, um, and, and financial literacy courses. Uh, Texas, for example, requires five hours, pretty significant um, amount of time. Um, but there's no standards. There's no uh, requirement as to who provides or how it's provided. Uh, it, it's going to be done on a piecemeal basis. And so for those professionals out there that are working with student athletes, I do think it, it's important that, um, you know, these issues, in addition to, you know, how student athletes are going to be able to earn, I think that the primary focus has been with companies discussing how we're going to maximize your uh, ability to earn off your image and maybe not so much of an emphasis on all of these other factors that need to be considered if, you, in fact, you want to earn some sort of money off of your image. So, Jason, I think one of the things that I really want to kind of touch on is obviously this ruling that came down on Monday, I think is really interesting in that from my perspective, just looking at it as a layman, I'm looking at this saying, well, that ruling, the Alston ruling that came down from the Supreme Court seems to be saying that, in effect, the amateur aspect of student athlete is, in fact, dead. Uh, simply saying that athletes can now earn money and there's no limits that the NCAA can put on it. I'm just curious, curious as to hear, you know, do you agree with that? And then what's your take on that ruling, just generally speaking, and what that means? Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. It was a, a big day in college sports. Uh, everyone was interested in that. And, and, and that ruling, uh, I'll talk about how it's affecting um, what the NCAA is going to do in name, image, and likeness. But generally, uh, NCAA versus Alston, was an, it's an antitrust case about whether the NCAA can collude to limit compensation. And the ruling itself was a very narrow ruling solely related to education-related benefits. So um, essentially, uh, the court said that the NCAA has to be scrutinized under regular antitrust rules and under a regular uh, antitrust analysis um, that, you know, essentially uh, the, uh, the, the rules related to limiting education-related expenses violated the uh, antitrust provisions, so they were illegal, essentially, okay? Uh, but it was it was limited to that very small piece uh, of rules. Now, where it expands is when we're talking about how the court got there. So for years and years, the NCAA has relied on a case called uh, NCAA versus Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma, 1984 case, that basically they suggested supported the idea that any rule that they made was, um, you know, was pro-competitive and therefore not a violation of antitrust rules. There was language in that particular ruling uh, from, a, from a justice 
unrelated to the underlying issue in that case that suggested we should give deference to the NCAA. And so the NCAA went into this to, to this case. They were actually the, the appealing party. Uh, so that, that's why it's called NCAA versus Alston instead of Alston versus NCAA, which is what it originally was, right? They, they ended up being the appealing party uh, and were granted certiorari uh, to, to, by the Supreme Court. And ultimately, the, the court said, no, you, you're not special, NCAA. You don't get any special antitrust provision. We're going to apply the same laws to you that we would to any other joint ventures. And, and, and just because you operate this uh, organization that's based on amateurism as it's one of its fundamental uh, processes, that alone isn't enough to give you any sort of antitrust exemption. So what they didn't do, though, uh, they didn't say that any other compensation-related benefits were violated antitrust. They only ruled on this very limited issue. What, what, what happened, though, is Justice Kavanaugh entered a concurring opinion, and that concurring opinion was scathing towards the NCAA. And that concurring opinion suggested that, you know, basically invited uh, plaintiff's attorneys to file more lawsuits against the NCA related to compensation related benefits, in, including, uh, you know, the scholarship limits that are currently in place, including any other limits that are, are placed on student athletes, which would place the concept of amateurism in serious jeopardy. And I think that as a result of both the underlying opinion that said your, uh, you know, your rules are subject to the same antitrust, um, you know, uh, guidance as, as any other joint venture and uh, Justice Kavanaugh's opinion that says, and it's not only this rule, it's all all of your rules are subject to this type of scrutiny that the, the NCA has taken a step back and said, we're not even sure we can implement any national standards any longer especially if they're related to compensation. And so at this point, they're going to likely solely rely on Congress uh, to provide any sort of national standard related to name, image, and likeness. So kind of taking a bit of a different perspective on this, and maybe this is helpful. So if I'm the NCAA, I'm in Indianapolis, I've just seen a wrecking ball come here and smash at the foundations of what we've stood for for you know, a long time. From your perspective, what is the next step that they are going to take? What is the logical reaction to um, these kinds of rulings? And what do you see them doing in order, I don't wanna say maintain what they've had, but where do you see them going and, and how do you think they're going to, to act in order to kind of address these these rulings and how is that going to impact student athletes? If you were to guess. Now, obviously, we're prognosticating. Big word, everybody. But what do we uh, what do you think is going to happen? Well, um, the, the NCA hasn't been traditionally good at adjusting uh, and modernizing their rules. So uh, to, as an understatement. So I don't anticipate them getting together and finding a reasonable solution. They, they had a two-pronged approach to, to, to this, these types of cases. One was, let's go to the Supreme Court and have them affirm what the court said in 1984, that we can, make, we can uh, rule ourselves. We get to make our own rules, and it's important because college athletics is important to the fabric of society. That didn't work. They lost. Now they're, they're going to the government 
the Congress, and they've been doing this for, for several months, and asking Congress to say, Congress put it in this national uh, standard. And also, while you do that, we need this antitrust exemption uh, because the Supreme Court just said we don't have one. But how are we going to be able to operate college sports as we know it if we don't, if we're not able to make rules? So they're, they're going to Congress and asking the government for a bailout. They're, they're much like uh, the financial companies, uh, you know, 10, 10, 15. Flashback to 2008. (laughs) There you go. Right. Got it. Right. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how successful do you think they'll be at that approach? I, I don't think it's a good strategy to leave Congress to regulate your industry and whatever whatever industry you're in. And, and right now, the result of that is likely going to be because Democrats control the Congress. There are two competing bills, one a Republican bill that's very limited to name, image and likeness regulations only. The other, a college athlete bill of rights that has all sorts of implications for for profit sharing for medical benefits for student athletes, uh, and also uh, for government entities to have some enforcement authority over uh, institutions. And what you're going to have now is if, in fact, the NCAA wants something done, they're going to have to adopt some of those democratic principles in a a final uh, piece of legislation. And um, I'm not sure that anyone in the industry is ready for that to occur. Um, and I, I'm, you know, frankly, I'm not sure uh, whether the NCAA would be even better off if they got that uh, type of ruling or, you know, type of uh, legislation, even if they get an antitrust exemption. Um, so it's it's a difficult position for everyone in, in college sports to be in. Jason, as you navigate this, um, this you know these crazy times and and these muddy waters, you bring with you a very diverse background. You were a student athlete. You went to law school. You worked at the NCA in two very different groups: enforcement and academic and membership affairs. You spent time on ca- campus, interfacing with student athletes, coaches, administrators, and now you're back to kind of where you started um, in the legal space. From all those experiences, how do you help these individuals in the athlete development space navigate these waters? What advice do you have for them, especially over the next 12 months? How do they navigate this in a successful, proactive manner instead of a reactive manner? Yeah. I, so um, I, I guess my, my first uh, um thought on this is that, you know, as, as an, in, you have to first understand where you're at, you know, what's your state law say? Okay. So wherever you're at, let's start with your state law and see what's actually in that law. And a lot of those state laws give deference to institutions um, to, to make policy and to do certain things. Um, so let's start with that. You know, we need, you need to really understand, you know, what does the law really say here? Because what you're going to have is, um, student athletes and individuals without great un- understanding saying, I can just get anything. I can do whatever I want. And uh, that's not necessarily what those laws say. So that, that's number one. Number two, um, you know, hopefully you're at an institution that has some foresight and, and planning um, related to this and is, is in a position to adopt some guardrails for your institution. Not every institution is going to want to treat student athletes the same way 
when it comes to these issues. And the rules don't necessarily say that you need to. They say that you need to give them the opportunity to earn off their name, image, and likeness. Uh, but they don't say how you do that as an institution. Um, what, what I would suggest is that there are, as a professional in this space that is worried about student athletes, that is concerned with student athletes on a daily basis, what type of guidelines do I need to put together for student athletes to consider? And some of it is what we talked about earlier related to, you really need to understand you know, what you're entering into if you're entering one of these agreements. You really need to look and talk with our uh, financial aid folks to understand what's the threshold amount that you can earn and not affect your other aid. That is key here. Um, you really need to, to understand um, if you're going to engage in some employment activity that's um, related to camps or clinics and you're using your uh, identity for that, how can you limit your personal exposure? And then um, you really need to be cognizant of what you're putting out there in terms of content that could affect your status on a team, could affect how you're, you're um, engaging uh, with your teammates. Um, I think there are implications here beyond just the legal ones that uh, relate to how teams and coaches interact with student athletes. That is a space where I think, um, you know, professionals that are student development professionals can fill. Back to me, Steph. Yeah, sorry. It just paused. Get him there. Awkward pause on the podcast, everybody. We're not going to ch edit that. We're just going to keep that in there so you guys know that what we're doing here isn't exactly... You were kind of like this, Duncan, Matrix. There you go. I've gone all cubic for you. Uh, one of us only wishes we look like Keanu Reeves, right? But I digress. Um, I guess one of the things I'm interested, we're kind of obviously, we're waiting for this next version of the NIL to come down. Um, you know, we've kind of talked about what exists now. We really don't know what the future looks like, correct? Like, we don't really exactly know how this ruling is going to come down. Um, and obviously, you just kind of walk through some of the different things, excuse me, we need to be aware of. But what are some of the specific rulings do you think they're going to come down from the Supreme Court around NIL that we need to be conscious of and be aware of from as, as a development professional um, that that maybe we don't fully grasp right now in terms of what the implications are. Yeah. So, so the only other case I think that, that has a significant impact is something that came out recently. And um, it's a first amendment case uh, involved a, a cheerleader in Pennsylvania in high school um, who's uh, went on there. So who, who basically didn't make the varsity team uh, was on the junior varsity team and posted some, derogatory comments towards her, her coach and, and the program as a result of that and was kicked off the team. She then uh, sued for an injunction, was granted that injunction uh, on the basis that she had a First Amendment freedom of speech right to make social media posts that were unrelated to, you know, were not on her campus and did not cause a significant disturbance uh, at, her, uh, at her high school. And Ultimately, this case went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court um, affirmed the lower court that said, yes, in this situation, uh, this high school student on a separate media platform that uh, uh, was, a and I think it was TikTok, 
you know, choose your platform of the day. You know, in 10 years, there'll be something different or, or two. She or, was probably dancing as she was doing it, right? If it's TikTok. <laughs> right, right. So it was TikTok. Um, they said that, um, you know, you need to give deference to individuals' ability to express themselves. That if they're not on your campus, you have less of a um, stake in what they're saying. Uh, and if their uh, speech does not create a, a disturbance, uh, that you can't limit it in the, in the way that you attempted to, which is by... Uh, imposing a rule that you essentially kick them off the team. So she was, uh, the, the, the court said, you know, gave some guidance in that regard. And, and how that af affects uh, name, image, and likeness and, and you know, your, your professionals for them to be aware of is, um, you know, obviously there are many rules and restrictions that institutions impose on student athletes related to what they can or cannot do uh, on social media. This rule would suggest that you should be very, um, that, that those rules should be very limited in terms of uh, their ability to post on, on outside platforms about their lives, about what's going on in athletics even. Uh, and even if it's critical of uh, some administrator or individual in charge. Uh, in fact, the Supreme Court said it's, it's most important that under, under you know, First Amendment rules that they're allowed to criticize individuals who are in charge that you know that's a that's a 180 from what we're traditionally taught in the athletics world it's a hierarchical society that is created on campuses uh and uh and and so it that's a real difficult concept and i think some institutions may struggle with that now one thing for your professionals to note is that you know this really applies to public schools for the most part um, I mean, it, it, it applies to public schools. It, it doesn't apply to private institutions, but some private institutions have their own freedom of expression policies. And, and so theoretically, you know, under a freedom of expression policy, something similar could come up. Um, so it, it's, um, that is a, you know, having two significant Supreme court rulings come down in a week in overlaid with, uh, six days until state laws go into effect that allow student athletes to have their name image likeness is the biggest tidal wave I've seen in college athletics in the you know 17 years I've I've been in law or or athletics. So it, it's uh, it and and we just it's a generational know. moment, right? Right, right. I I do believe that. Yes. And Jason, this is just so so interesting to hear as as someone who's been in in this space her entire career. We're always working with young men and women to develop the best sense, best their best self. So we're working on their image, their branding, their networking, their relationship building. And we're always talking to them about be mindful of what you put online. You can never take it down. Um, the impact is not just at that moment. It could be five, 10 years down the road when you're trying to apply for a job. Um, and so to be able to monitor that and educate these individuals. Now we're saying, oh, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. But coaches from a recruiting standpoint, they're looking at high school athletes. What is their um, online profile? What are they saying or doing? Because they wanna ensure if they're bringing someone to their team, it's a respectful individual, it's someone who's gonna work hard, not going to defame someone else's character. Um, so this is going to be a struggle for people in this space that are working with these young men and women trying to develop them, you know, into 
outstanding citizens. And part of that is being mindful of what you post online and professional athletes and celebrities get criticized all the time when there's something that is uh, posted that is seen as inappropriate. But now you're telling these young men and women, well, you can say whatever you want. Um, and so for those individuals that are listening that are in the professional space, th there's going to be a learning curve again that has to happen because from the NFL, the NBA, NASCAR, MLB, there are rules and regulations. You can't just say whatever you want or you can, and then you're paying a $50,000 fine. So, yeah. So I guess I would, I would push back on, on just the concept that, you know, maybe, maybe it isn't that you can say whatever you what, what, what the court was saying in there is, is there's protected speech and, yeah, kids have the opportunity to do that. I think it's probably, especially for, for student uh, development professionals, it's a matter of approaching the conversation in a different way, right? So it's really now um, about is that is what you would you would say, is that going to be in your best interest? Is that, you know, maybe you have a maybe you have the ability to do it uh, and you always had the ability to say what you wanted. There were some consequences, but but there are still going to be consequences in terms of how you're viewed in your community, how you're, you know, uh, perceived in terms of your value to uh, entities that want to um, use you for commercials or, or other, you know, type of, um, you know, commercial activities. Um, so I do think there's still, it's just a different uh, and uncomfortable discussion because it's not an, an enforcement mechanism that, that's being applied here. It's not a, we have a clear rule, you can't do this. Um, it is this is not in your best interest to do. And here are the reasons why you still have a choice. Um, but uh, here's why I would suggest as a development professional that it is in your best interest to portray yourself in X, Y, and Z way. So it's a continued life skill dialogue. It, but your point is um, it's not regulated by the institution that there are rules and regulations, but it's still life skills teaching them um, to make wise decisions because the impact can still be there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And some institutions may still have rules and regulations, right? So again, we're in this nebulous uh, area yeah. uh, where um, we're state by state in terms of name, image, and likeness. We are, there's no national standard with respect to free, you know, how, how you're communicating uh, uh, about your team, for example. Um, and some coaches are probably still going to have things in place and say, this is my team. I have the ability to do this. You know, good luck suing me. Go to the Supreme Court if you want to. I, I think we all know coaches that would probably say that uh, to student athletes. Well, that's kind of the fascinating thing. I mean, I was a former D1 coach and, you know, I'm just thinking about how coaches are going to react to this shift where basically a player, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, can completely sandbag a program, an athletic department, however they want on whatever social media with zero ramifications in terms of legal or expulsion from a team. Um, but like you said, it's going to have this, this, this other potential impact. And like you said, as Steph alluded to, there's going to be a learning opportunity there in one, one way, shape or form, but there really is going to have to be a complete shift in mindset from the coaching perspective in terms of understanding how students are going to utilize this, what the implications for in terms of, this is how students may decide to communicate and you're going to have to be okay with that in some way, shape or form. The traditional response probably isn't going to hold up. That, that is a, a sea change in and of itself that 
the coaches don't necessarily have the hammer they used to have. Yeah, I, I think that we're in an era, and, and this has been developing over time, where student athletes and, and really, you know, young people and students have uh, been asserting themselves more and more, uh, even publicly, about what they deserve as student athletes. And until there is a um, solution that is similar to a professional league, where there's some type of collective bargaining or other rulemaking ability, um, then, then we're going to be in a space that's, that's going to feel uncomfortable. And we're going to be in a space where uh, student athletes may still get kicked off teams. And then the question is whether they're going to pursue litigation against their institutions as a result of that. Uh, and so it, it's going to be uncomfortable until uh, we, we all are operating under the same standard. Do you, so I'm just curious. So you have all this stuff going on. Like you said, you have this generational moment. You just happen to be at this perfect intersection of <laughs> understanding how this plays out. What are your clients coming to you and what are they talking to you about? How are you trying to help them navigate this? What's sort of the, the, the advice or, or, or how are you ask, or asking your organizations to, to internalize what's happening here? And what are you asking them to do? What advice are you giving them? Yeah. Um, so my initial advice was that if someone told you that they were experts in this, that they're not, uh, that, they, that there's still so much unknown. Now, after Monday and then again with the, the Supreme Court, the First Amendment decision, uh, both Alston and the, and the decision, and it was uh, the name of the case was Mahoney versus BL. Um, now we have a little more clarity. So, you know, I, I think what, I, what I'm advising uh, my clients uh, is you know, I do think we need to take a hard look at, at your state uh, rule and see what kind of uh, guardrails as an institution we can put in place. From a conference perspective, uh, you know, it may be best to, to provide guidance to your member institutions and allow your institutions to implement uh, uh, these rules. What the Supreme Court did say in, in their ruling in, in Alston was that even though the NCAA and, and, and this particular group of conferences that were sued that included, you know, basically the Power Five and some FBS conferences, they can't make these rules. But we're not saying that, that individual conferences couldn't make the rules. So there's some, um, you know, basically the, the Supreme Court said there's other ways to regulate college athletics uh, aside from how the NCAA has done it. And um, again, that's a very uncomfortable space for most clients. And for individuals that are used to um, a national organization um, having, you know, some baseline um, rules and regulations. Just to follow up on that, you know, you talked about guidance coming from the conference. Now, at the institutional level, where should the education, the rules, the direction be held within the athletic program? Who should be the keeper of NIL, so to speak? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, uh, traditionally those things are going to have fallen on athletics compliance folks who are, who are overworked. I think it has to be um, a group effort um, that involves individuals outside of athletics to make sure that whatever we're um, implementing, that we're doing it in a consistent way for all our students, right? So athletics is its own beast, its own animal. And most of these statutes are, you know, basically tailored towards student athletes, in part because other groups don't have the same limitations from a national organization standpoint on what they could do. 
Um, so your, you know, your outstanding musician is always the argument. Your outstanding musician could go out and make a, a million dollars and he's fine. Your, your greatest, uh, you know, quarterback cannot do the same thing and, and be fine within the college athletes context. Um, so, but, but what I, I guess I would suggest is, is that um, it would have to be the general counsel, student development, athletics compliance and the, and the athletics department that are all coming together to make sure whatever you're implementing is consistent across. And, and probably the biggest thing, you know, at least that I've presented to institutions and, and, and to, to conferences is um, the issue. One of the issues here is that's un, unresolved is, is name uh, your own intellectual property uh, and how you're allowing students to use their status as a ex athlete in order to um, promote themselves. And, and that's a little bit um, uncertain. Uh, some, some state uh, laws suggest and say that um, institutions can limit student athletes ability to use their intellectual property. And, and I think that typically, um, you know, that would be the case that um, individuals who are earning something as a result of, you know, wearing a logo would have to pay some sort of uh, fee in order to do that. Um, now, is that going to be the direction most institutions go with this? Probably not. It's probably in most institutions' best interest to have someone promote their brand uh, so long as it's not um, in a derogatory manner, uh, obviously. So um, it, it, there's all sorts of uh, spiderweb effect of, of different issues that are going to come out of this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the you're going to have to have organizations take a completely different look at how they're evaluating the value of their student athletes, their former student athletes. How do they want them to engage? Because you have to imagine that there would be significant benefits in terms of augmenting the status of your organization by utilizing these athletes in a way that, you know, that sort of furthers your reach as an, as an institution. But I think it's incumbent upon these organizations to, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, the, a lot of these NCAA institution, institutions need to pull their heads out of their collective back ends and really understand that in order to have the most positive impact on their student athletes, they can't just go through a box ticking exercise. They're actually going to have to engage with them. They're going to have to give them real information, real tools and real, real resources in order for them to have the kind of impact they want. Otherwise, you're really just winding these kids up, sending them out uh, onto the highway. And as we had kind of alluded to, that there may or may not be any appropriate guardrails on there. Uh, so if if institutions aren't taking the education in and around this seriously, the likelihood of some kid driving this truck into the ditch go go way, way, way up. And I think that's that's what I'm concerned about. I think I think this is a phenomenal opportunity for athletes, and I do think it's a phenomenal opportunity for institutions. But if they if they don't take their obligation seriously to the athletes, I think it could be a real problem both at an institutional and a student athlete level. Uh, and I think you have to view it as an opportunity. So that's kind of my uh, soapbox speech. Um, and I think you know uh, again my comments don't necessarily represent the views of all the PADS members, but I think the NCAA really hasn't done what it can do uh, previously. And I think if they can, in this instance, I think there's a real opportunity across the board. And, and one thing with the NIL, I've noticed probably over the last two weeks, uh, different institutions have uh, forged partnerships with organizations to help 
their student athletes. And there's these announcements that we are doing X, Y, and Z, which is great. But that starts to bring attention to the haves and have nots, because not all institutions have the funding to do that, to hire a third party to do the education and training for their student athletes and coaches. Um, and all institutions don't have the manpower within. So you might bring a presenter in one time and provide at least basic information, information which is great. But if you have one individual that is running compliance for 18 teams or one individual that's doing student athlete development for 18 teams, and then you're adding this other layer, um, it's a heavy load. And so I think as over the next um, calendar or academic year, you're definitely going to see the, the difference in institutions with funding as well as manpower, which is unfortunate because there could be some phenomenal opportunities for student athletes that are missed because there isn't the education um, that is needed for the situation to be you know, most effective. Yeah, I, I think that's well said uh, by both of you. I think there's opportunities here. Um, I think there are, this is going to um, expose inequities and, you know, I don't know long term whether it's going to result in in really a change and a shift in how athletics is managed um, at a, um, you know, a division division one, um, you know, power five or or autonomy five, however you want to say it, a level versus, uh, you know, the the FCS schools and division two and division three. I will say that. um you know, if you want to look at, you know, you know, maybe what has happened at another entity. So the NAIA is an example of an organization that deregulated. At, they didn't fight California. They said, all right, California, good point. We're going to let our kids get <laughs> earn name of your likeness. Right. So they deregulated their, their rule and basically said, we still have the concept of amateurism. But as part of our concept of amateurism, um, this is an excluded uh, uh, category student athletes earning their own, uh, you know, using their own uh, commercial interests, as long as our institutions aren't paying for them, uh, they, you know, they basically can, can do and, and engage in these activities how they want. If they use an, an institution's, um, you know, apparel or, you know, uh, intellectual property, they need to disclose that and get permission, you know, essentially. So that happened in uh, to that last October. And since then, there's been a several articles about NAI athletes earning money from TikTok and, and other activities, usually not related to athletics, um, where there, there really hasn't been a, you know, a significant issue. Now you could say that's probably, you know, that's because sports at that level are different than sports at the division one level. And so you don't have the, the type of fan base or individuals that are interested in this. And, and maybe that's the case, or maybe it's the case that many of these rules should be deregulated and we should um, allow individuals to, you know, do the types of things that, that normal students are able to do. And if we did that and worried a little bit less about the guardrails, maybe that's the right approach. Um, you know, this is going to be a, an interesting experiment to see how it works at a, you know, uh, intensified level. One thing I will say is that the NCAA has made it clear that recruiting rules are still in effect, extra benefit rules are still in effect, booster rules are still in effect. And many of these state laws, interestingly enough, which I, I personally don't agree with, prohibit prospects from earning money off their name, image, and likeness. So you have a, an elite basketball player who is a marketable figure. Let's just, you know, Zion Williams 
you know, type of situation, um, you know, he still can't earn uh, off his name, image, and likeness under many of these state laws, which is fascinating that a state law one in, in one aspect would allow, you know, permit, you know, this, this use and say, this is important to us because it's such a problem that uh, student athletes aren't allowed to earn. And then at the same, in the same breath say, but that doesn't apply if you're not at a, at an institution. <laughs> and it just, it shows the, that, that, that was, these are political um, animals and the concerns that, that they had were related to their state high school associations, amateurism uh, rules, how that, you know, interplay was going to happen. And also in ensuring there was some sort of uh, fail safe uh, for their institutions to not uh, put themselves in jeopardy from an NCA perspective. So it, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, discussion. I imagine that could create some litigation at some point. Well, they, yeah, exactly. Then you start to see the full-on trickle-down into the high school side. And then again, I mean, I think what we, we kind of skirted around the issue a bit is that obviously there are going to be huge implications in terms of what happens as these athletes, uh, they need to be ready for, for this new reality as they enter from high school into the collegiate space. And then what are the implications as these athletes make the jump into the professional ranks? I think there's a range of different issues that potentially kind of raise their head on this. I mean, obviously, you know, the percentage of those athletes from the NCAA making the jump into the pro ranks is low, but they're, those are going to be a different brand or a different type of athlete now and how they are going to interact with their teams and the public and fans is going to be different than the individual that sort of came up pre um, or pre the new world order. Uh, I think is, is, I think it's probably the best way to describe it. So I guess the last question uh, from my end is really, all right, so we've got all this going on. Where, where is this going? At the end of the day, where do you see this really kind of driving to as a whole? Um, and when things simmer down, where do you think we'll be at as it relates to NIL, the NCAA, student amateurism? Uh, again, going back to that crystal ball, where do you see this shaking out? So it's a very difficult uh, question given all the um, you know different elements that you know happened all at one time. I, I will say that it's clear that there's a shift to student athletes having more of a say in, in institutional uh, rules, in uh, NCA rules, in how they're um, treated at an institution. And I guess my hope is that that this leads to um, you know, your professionals being supported in a, in a, in a, in a different way, uh, because the, the heart of these programs are the athletes, um, and they do have an economic benefit. So we continue to provide the necessary resources and in conjunction with that, that we don't get overly litigious, but that, um, there is, uh, this understanding that there needs to be some, um, supervision in, in that is beyond uh, the the institutions in terms of um, medical uh, care, um, how uh, you know how student athletes can bring grievances themselves um, against institutions or coaches. Um, you know, I, I I hope that this then leads to some some more discussions about the the best way to set that up, um, whether it's within the NCA system or a, a new system. Well, you heard it here. You heard it here first, folks. Um, that 
this means that you as a athlete development specialist are now more important. <laughs> we Beyond always knew show. though. Well, exactly. And, yeah. I, and I say this with a, with a degree of seriousness in the sense that we are now seeing the, the importance of this role as a hub for uh, managing athletes and their, not only their performance, not only their wellness, but also their overall integration into the broader world is become immensely more important. And I think that, uh, you know, we had seen this, uh, a colleague of ours uh, from the Women's Tennis Association, Kathleen Stroya, she had always talked about that there was sooner or later that the primary driver of athlete engagement would be through the athlete development specialist. And I think with the point that you just made kind of drives that home. And what we're seeing is that this is beginning to happen. And I think the idea that... Um, the athlete development specialist is this person that lives on an island in an office by themselves and every now and then gets trotted out to talk about life skills. That's a trope that needs to die and, and is about to. And I think, um, you know, that's a, it's an exciting time for the folks that work in our field. And I think that's why they need to get their arms around and understand how this is happening, how this is shaking out, what the implications are. Granted, there's a whole bunch of legal eagies that you're going to have to grind through. <laughs> but at, at the end of the day, it boils down to, we have to help our athletes excel across multiple uh, multiple fields, multiple mediums in order to be successful both on and off the playing surface. So with that, again, I've been talking a lot here from my soapbox, Steph. I don't know what's going on here. Get fired up about the NCAA, I guess. Um, so with that, I want to thank my colleague, uh, Stephanie Thorburn, for joining us. And again, many thanks to Jason Montgomery. Really appreciate taking the time to chat with us today. It's been very enlightening. And thanks again for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. And more importantly, we greatly appreciate your support of PADS. We'd also like to acknowledge the support of our global partners for their ongoing support of all of our initiatives, including the Athlete Development Podcast Series. Again, be sure to be on the lookout for information regarding live Q&A sessions. And we urge you to continue to dive deep into all of the different podcasts that we're bringing to you over the coming weeks. Again, thanks for your interest and for your support of PADS.